Hey. Hello. Oh. Welcome back Look, to us. I'm so excited to be back. It was a whole week of no Ukrainian spaces almost. It was a lot. <laughs> yes, uh, we were really, you know, missing you. Although we had uh, two really great uh, shows and two fantastic Ukrainians uh, Wednesday and Friday. But of course, it's nothing without you. So welcome back. And, Thank you. Uh, Hope you you've sorted out everything that you needed to sort out, and uh, everything is uh, back to. Well, I cannot say normal, but everything is back to the place where you can co-host again. Yes, I'm. I'm definitely back and definitely ready to co-host with more awesome Ukrainians. So, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I mean, uh, it hasn't. It's it's quite it's quite a hellish week, and the, the previous week was also quite hellish, but. Uh, Unfortunately, we learned yesterday uh, very uh, saddening news about one of our part of our Ukrainian spaces family, uh, Mariam Nayam, and her brother, who was who got really seriously injured in uh, in the east. Um, so Mariam was uh, public about it on social media and Twitter, um, and yeah. she shared this uh, this news. Um, and I just want to quote something that she posted yesterday uh, on Twitter saying all this social media work, writing each threat and tweet to explain Ukraine to foreigners, it's, it's exhausting. Why do I keep doing this? I'm selfish. I wanted to do everything I could to help my brother's safety. Today he was wounded and I want to scream at this injustice. And uh, of course, it, it's hard to read this because, unfortunately, with an intensifying uh, fighting in the East, there are more and more people we know who got injured, who unfortunately got killed. And um, what Mariam is saying is something that really hit me yesterday as well, reminding yeah. me why we're doing this every day. Because those people on the front line also rely on us to keep speaking up to make sure that every and single foreigner do not forget about this genocide happening, not yeah. for a single second. But I think what you sent me yesterday was also really good as a reminder that all of our family and friends and, and people basically who are protecting us and protecting our land are partially also doing it for us, uh, the people who are close to them and so it's super important for us to keep going and keep doing what we're doing um, because at the end of the day a lot of our loved ones who are in, in tricky situations are are really in need of us in terms of continuing yeah and uh, i wanted before we uh, continue with our featured ukrainian um, i also wanted to remind everyone that today is a day of journalists in ukraine uh, something we celebrate every year. And um, I, I always say that Ukrainian journalists are one of the most kick-ass, defined, fantastic people, uh, at least in Europe, for sure. But I, I shared today the full list uh, of journalists who were uh, murdered during this genocide in Ukraine, my colleagues. And while I was putting it together, uh, it's it's a even for me you know I know this number of thirty two but even for me the, the the list was a bit overwhelmingly long and I really want you guys to check out uh, this list and to share it and an honor 
uh, of all those people and learn their names and say them with us as well. It was uh, Roman Zhuk and Vitali Derech and Konstantin Kitz, Oksana Haidar, Maxim Medensky, Natalia Harakos, Alexander Mahov, Vira Herich, Zoroslav Zamoyski, Roman Nezheborets, Yevhen Bal, Denis Kotenko, Sergei Zaykovsky, Yuri Olinek, Lilia uh, Humainova, Oleg Yakunin, Viktor Dedov, Pavlo Lee, Viktor Dudar, Sergei Pushenko, Dilerbek Shakirov, Max Levin, Alexandra Kovshenova, uh, Evhen Sakun. Okay, so let's, uh, for for those who join us for the first time, let's maybe reminding them what Ukrainian Spaces is and what we're doing here, if you don't mind. Yeah, for sure. I miss doing this. It uh, feels like going back, as you said, to not normal, but to what we have been doing for the past 100 plus days. Um, but essentially, the reason that we've been um, doing this with Maxim for, for quite a while now, we did a roundup post the other day of... Uh, all the episodes that we've done. I think we've done now more than 20 plus live spaces and uh, I think over 10 episodes uh, of the podcast on Apple and Spotify. But essentially, we were seeing millions of Ukrainians with perfect English, sharing stories across social media platforms. But the conversations about Ukraine continue to be were and continue to be dominated by Western, uh, mostly white and mostly male folks. And this not only continuously robs Ukrainians of um, our agency, but it also perpetuates outdated, misleading, false narratives about our country. So what we're doing here and um, today with our wonderful Ukrainian, um, featured Ukrainian, we are fostering a relaxed, safe and chill space for all of us to express our views and uh, for those uh, who are joining who are not Ukrainian to learn a bit more about our perspectives and views on our country and everything else as well. And the last thing, the most important one though, is our patrons uh, page um you can become our sponsors because ukrainian spaces still to the date is 100 independent volunteer and listener supported effort and we're keep doing that only because of our growing number of sponsors but we also need a bit of more help to make sure that we have the capacity to keep doing that but also elevate the production a bit and uh, that's where you come in with your donation. So thank you so much. But also, this is not a charity. As our sponsor, you get cool stuff, extra stuff on Patreon space. But most importantly, you get the front seat during our broadcast. You can ask your questions to our featured Ukrainians in person or leaving them on our Patreon page. Please do that. And once again, thank you so much, guys, for existing and supporting us and making sure the Ukrainian voices are amplified. Yeah, so now we um, would love and, you know, we're super excited to introduce our um, featured Ukrainian this time. Uh, it's Bogdana Naborak. She's with us. Bogdana, are you with us? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, hey. So um, thank you so much for joining us. 
we have uh, one ground rule we never change uh, every ukrainian coming on ukrainian spaces has the power to introduce themselves absolutely the way they wanted it and um so please uh, can you share uh, a bit of a story about yourself who you are where you come from and what your life has been since the genocide started uh okay um so hello everybody who's uh, today with us uh, my name is uh, bohdana nebarak and uh, i'm ukrainian journalist uh, and uh, culture manager uh, i was ukrainian journalist and culture manager uh, before february 24 uh, and uh, i'm lucky to keep my position and to work with uh, the uh, same uh, uh, things since uh, the genocide started uh, and um, i need to say that uh, i even uh, feel that uh, my work uh, became uh, much important uh, since then uh, i love working uh, with ukrainian culture and with ukrainian literature and um, when uh, when i do anything when i speak to anybody in my daily work at the ukrainians where i make interviews and where i'm the editor of the interviews uh, i always speak uh, think and speak about uh, culture in very broad and uh, general terms uh, but i also um, like reading I'm an avid reader and I had a podcast about uh, literature and how it influences our daily life. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I studied law at uh, university at Kiev Mahela Academy. And uh, I really wanted to become a human, um, a human rights lawyer. But uh, then I felt that I'm more useful as a person who works with uh, culture and uh, journalism. Uh, so uh, uh, there is also that uh, legal approach in my daily work because I just can't uh, be without that. And uh, if speaking mm. very briefly, that's it. I feel like extremely privileged, especially as a Ukrainian, because I have this privilege of listening to your amazing, sensational podcast on Ukrainian literature in Ukrainian, just called Beznazwe. Um, so you guys, if there are Ukrainians here who are not aware of this podcast, this is absolute must. But also if you're one of those lucky foreigners who understand Ukrainian, please do check it out. And, um, you know, for, for everyone else, I always kind of to understand my just uh, fascination with Bodana's work is uh, her really fantastic and fresh and um, really refreshing look on the Ukrainian culture, not only because this is something that not usually being featured abroad very much, but also because she looks at it through uh, decolonial lenses as well and um, answers the questions like why there are so many foreigners abroad that have no idea about Ukrainian culture despite of its massive impact and very ancient history. So, I mean, Bodana, I know that it's a bit loaded question, but when um, you faced with some of the foreigners time to time who have no idea or what worse, when you mentioned that you're Ukrainian, they, you know, uh, uh, mentioning some Russian culture to you, what was your, uh, what is your usual 
kind of a comeback to it. Like, how do you make sure that foreigners have really um, clear idea why Ukrainian culture is hasn't been um, so uh, widely popular among the foreigners in uh, in recent decades? Uh, when I start uh, this conversation uh, with uh, a person uh, which uh, doesn't work uh, professionally in the field of culture or in the field of media, I'm usually trying to be nice and uh, find uh, some general points uh, that uh, might be known by uh, this person. For example, uh, the music of uh, Daha Braha or, uh, I don't know, uh, the prose or poetry of Serhii Jadan or uh, Andrei Kurkov, uh, who are the best known Ukrainian writers abroad. And uh, then a person uh, um, might uh, understand uh, that uh, he or she knows something uh, from Ukrainian culture or Ukrainian literature. Uh, but uh, if this uh, conversation is uh, professional, of course, I'm trying uh, to use uh, the decolonial lenses uh, because uh, usually, unfortunately, uh, we might uh, hear that uh, Ukrainian culture uh, wasn't uh, well known uh, because uh, it uh, somehow uh, didn't deserve it. Uh, of course, it is not the issue, uh, but uh, the answer to this question is not that simple. And uh, the answer uh, is uh, in uh, the history of Ukraine. And uh, it is uh, important uh, to introduce um, a brief history of uh, Ukraine and uh, the oppression of Russian Empire and then the USSR against Ukraine uh, to make it clear why Ukrainian culture uh, wasn't uh, well known abroad. And uh, it is not only Ukrainian culture. We speak about really a lot of different big and small cultures uh, that were oppressed by Russia in uh, recent uh, hundreds of years. Uh, so I just try to uh, depict um, at least the history of the last century uh, because uh, Ukraine in the 20th century found itself in a state of uh, double marginalization and uh, people uh, really don't understand uh, that uh, there was a nation state uh, in, which was destroyed by Russia in mm -hmm. nine, uh, 1921 and uh, that it led to the fact that uh, there were no powerful, for example, foreign missions uh, of Ukraine of or uh, no authoritative lobbies abroad mm. and uh, then when we come to the ukraine's independence in 1991 it is uh, also the uh, difficult issue because for example uh, there were a lot of um, university departments of Soviet studies abroad, and uh, they mostly became uh, the departments of post-Soviet studies or departments of Russian and East European studies. And when we come to the curriculums of those departments, we see that Russia is in the center of everything. And uh, oh, yeah. there might be... Yes, 99%. Of... Yeah, they call it post-Soviet, <laughs> but in most cases, this means just Russian. Right. 
Uh, yeah, and uh, it is uh, just uh, difficult to understand uh, to many people because uh, they think that, okay, there is a big state, it is called Ukraine, and it has 40 million people, uh, but uh, if we don't know any poet from this state, uh, maybe uh, there is uh, no uh, worth reading a poet from this state because uh, they, for example, don't have a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, it is uh, a thing... Uh, that uh, deals uh, with uh, national complexes, and I mean not only Ukrainian national complexes, but the national complexes of different uh, European countries, for example, because uh, they must admit that uh, they uh, don't know enough about this big country, and uh, they must discover it. Yeah. Um, that's super interesting, and I think something Maxim spoke about earlier as well. But um, I know this is this will sound like a shortcut, and obviously the long the long sort of uh, proper way to do this would be to read um, uh, certain writers and poets, uh, and we can pin your tweet as well that you did recently of Ukrainian writers and poets in English. But I was just wondering, and I don't know if this will be too uh, open ended of a question, but we talk a lot about misconceptions that the West has about Ukraine. And uh, to me, it seems like the logical way to deal with some of those misconceptions is to read Ukrainian poets and Ukrainian literature from over the ages. But I was just wondering, uh, what, in your opinion, do you think would be some of what would you learn if you were a Westerner and you learned you read some of those books that you've been recommending or in general Ukrainian literature from over the years? What do you think would be like sort of the biggest uh, things that you would learn that you might not necessarily already know as a Westerner? I think it is really a very broad story uh, because um, on the one hand, uh, you may start, uh, for example, uh, with the history of Ukrainian executive renaissance. It is uh, the very uh, bright uh, generation of Ukrainian modernist and avant-garde writers. And it is just very interesting. Uh, on the other hand, you might start with the generation that uh, came after Chernobyl uh, when there was Perestroika in the USSR and uh, a lot of Ukrainian writers were able uh, to uh, write with uh, bigger freedom. Uh, also, you might start with Ukrainian writers from the late 19th and early 20th century uh, because uh, those writers are very important uh, for Ukrainian national building process as uh, anywhere in Europe. Uh, I mean, uh, those uh, processes of romanticism when the nation states uh, were founded and the ideas and narratives of nation states uh, were uh, constructed. Uh, so I think there are a lot of untold stories from uh, Ukrainian literature. But uh, if I may advise our uh, audience to start with something, I of course advise to start with the uh, contemporary Ukrainian writers because uh, those are the people who live in uh, the world uh, we live in. And they comment uh, on the situations we are all in. And also you might uh, just um, turn on on the YouTube video and uh, watch them and listen to them. And uh, for example, Serhi Jadan is a really great example because uh, he is not only a rock star from Ukrainian poetry, but also prose. Uh, he is a person which stays uh, in uh, Kharkiv uh, from the first day of war. Um, in uh, his recent interview, he told that uh, war uh, came to him when he, uh, with his team, uh, was on their road to their 
concert and of course they decided to come back to Kharkiv because they understood they want to protect their city and not to become the refugees uh, who lost their country and there were very difficult and very tough times when I know a lot of people were writing to Serhi Jadan and told him that uh, he must save himself because he is a very important voice of contemporary Ukraine uh, but he decided to stay in Kharkiv and uh, to protect uh, to protect the country and I think that uh, his decisions uh, make his literature even more powerful and uh, it is just um, something uh, you can f feel now because it is the uh, history that is uh, made uh, just uh, behind us. Actually, I I think you're might be not might be you are the best person to ask this question because um, one of the um, debates or one of the comebacks from a lot of foreigners I always get is um, please can you name specific examples how specifically Russia is colonial to Ukraine and just recently you tweeted um, about the story that is now in the news how in occupied Mariupol Russians are bringing uh, Russian teachers who um, you know force onto Ukrainian kids who are still there um, Russian language Russian literature they uh, ban um, Ukrainian literature from curriculum they ban Ukrainian language as a language of teaching but if you would take a bit longer perspective, can you maybe explain us how exactly Russian colonial rule suppressed Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian culture through uh, the decades? Uh, yeah, it's really a tough question. And uh... Uh, the example that you give is uh, just horrific and uh, when I saw that video I uh, cried because I understood that uh, it is a history from the 17th century and it uh, has been repeating with us uh, each century and sometimes each decade. Uh, but still uh, it is something uh, that uh, Ukrainians really know. Uh, that uh, when Russia comes to this territory, uh, it uh, tries to erase uh, uh, this culture and uh, this language. And uh, the history of oppression of Ukrainian uh, language and, uh, for example, the right to publish uh, and to spread uh, books and literature in Ukrainian is uh, very long and it really uh, lasted uh, for uh, more than uh, 400 years. Um, and um, very interesting thing is uh, that uh, we have uh, already 30 years of independence but on the other hand, we have this uh, 400 years of uh, oppression and uh, these uh, 400 years uh, influence us uh, till today. Uh, because, uh, for example, you had a really outstanding podcast about uh, Lesa Ukrainka and uh, Ukrainian modernism and uh, uh, Lesa Ukrainka just wasn't able to publish her works uh, in her uh, home city or in Kiev. Uh, she um, had to publish it uh, in Lviv because uh, Lviv was a part of uh, 
uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and uh, it was uh, just um, legally okay there to uh, publish something in Ukrainian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you started that with uh, that story of uh, Mariupol and uh, I, it's just difficult for me to go on. Uh, so probably try with another no, no, question. No, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. It's great example. And I think uh, like not only in that uh, episode, which is uh, uh, also available as a podcast. So I, I think it's our second episode. We also talked a lot how uh, through the centuries, Russian colonial rule would not only you know, this is the easiest example how writers were squashed and, you know, forbidden. They couldn't publish anywhere uh, or would be outright killed, sent to Siberia and whatnot. But there was also another way of um, yeah, influencing and rewriting and raising those voices by Russian colonial rule misrepresenting their um, writings. Like, you know, you mentioned Lesa Ukrainka that through decades and centuries afterwards during the Russian colonial rule was sold back to Ukrainians completely as this infantile, you know, like a romanticized childlike figure and her work on feminism, on anti-colonial statements, on uh, liberation, on Ukrainian independence, they were all, um, um, they were all squashed and we, didn't even knew much about it just because that's how she was represented right yeah yeah and it's also our heritage from uh, russia because um, they understood that uh, figures like uh, lesa ukrainka or taras shevchenko or ivan franko were just too big and uh, too huge and um, uh, there is the museum of lesa ukrainka in uh, volin region and it is really interesting to come there because uh, when Soviets came uh, to Volin, uh, they of course came to museum and they understood uh, that um, they just need to do something with Lesa Ukrinka and her house. And they just decided uh, to dedicate one of the rooms to Marxism, to Lenin, and uh, in this way to uh, tighten Lesa Ukrainka uh, to communist uh, ideology. And that's what they did also with Ivan Pranko. Uh, and uh, I'm from Lviv. Uh, I grew up there and uh, there is uh, some something like cult of uh, Ivan Pranko. He is very important person from the uh, for Lviv and uh, till today uh, people who work with Ivan Franko with his museum with his heritage uh, just need to solve uh, that um, post-Soviet approach uh, which uh, still is alive and it is alive at our schools at some of the museums at excursions and uh, even in uh, literature and in academia. Um, Bogdana, I also wanted to ask you about Shistodisatniki a little bit more. And for those, because for, I'm sure a lot of people don't uh, in the West and out there, just outside of Ukraine don't know uh, too much about the, the you know, well-known poets, journalists, activists, all part of this movement in Ukraine. It's actually something I knew probably very little about, um, sadly, and unfortunately for me, uh, before the war started, but I find it so fascinating, their stories, their lives, their fate. Um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, to tell 
everyone hear a little bit about this movement and and the literature and poetry that that um, sort of started from that. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, uh, it is uh, the generation of uh, Ukrainian dissidents, and uh, it is very interesting to think about them because uh, it was uh, the new generation uh, that. Uh, decided uh, to step aside from a communist ideology after the executive renaissance. Uh, so uh, some decades passed, uh, the new people uh, grew up and uh, then uh, found out that there is uh, uh, something bad with uh, their country and with the Soviet Union. But um, there are some things that I uh, find very interesting about dissidents. And uh, first of all, is uh, that uh, a lot of dissidents, uh, of a lot of Ukrainian writers, dissidents, uh, they were from uh, Donbass region. Uh, for example, uh, Vasil Stus uh, or uh, Ivan Sviklichny. Uh, maybe the best example is uh, Vasil Stus because uh, he was murdered in uh, Soviet camps in the late 80s. And there are a lot of people who think that uh, the Soviet Union uh, in late 80s was uh, something very democratic and a good place to live in, but uh, totally not for Ukrainian writers who just wanted to write in Ukrainian and to uh, tell what they think. And um, I really like that uh, Vasil Stus uh, is among uh, those people who are from Eastern Ukraine because it gives us uh, an image of a person from Eastern Ukraine. Uh, we also spoke today about Sergei Zhadan, who is also a great character of Ukrainian East, uh, but Vasil Stus uh, was uh, the same. Uh, but uh, if speaking about uh, Ukrainian dissidents, uh, most of them uh, were also Ukrainian modernist writers. And uh, they were not writing uh, the rival poetry or uh, the especially nationalistic poetry. Uh, let me tell you my personal story. My godfather is uh, Igor Kalinets, and he is a Ukrainian modernist writer from 60s. And he and his uh, wife, uh, Irina Kalinets, were sentenced uh, to six years of uh, labor camps and uh, three years uh, of uh, living in the deep east uh, of Russia. And uh, uh, they wanted uh, to write in Ukrainian and uh, they wanted to protect uh, human rights in Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, that was enough uh, to get sentenced. Uh, and uh, when you read the poetry of Ihor Kalanets uh, before this uh, sentence, uh, you just uh, understand it is a, a very um, deep and um, very special modernist poetry. He was called a prince of uh, Ukrainian poetry. Uh, he was well known, for example, uh, for finding a grave of uh, Bohdan Igor Antonich, uh, who was a poet from Lviv who uh, was just forgotten by uh, the uh, Soviet Union and uh, his uh, grave uh, was demolished. But, uh, of course, uh, the uh, position of the USSR influenced him and his circle and uh, his wife. 
and uh, he moved on uh, with writing uh, in camps and uh, when uh, he came back uh, from uh, Russia and from uh, his imprisonment of course uh, he called himself a Ukrainian patriot and he went on uh, in fighting uh, for Ukrainian independence and mm -hmm. it is interesting uh, that uh, Russian Empire is uh, that power that uh, makes Ukrainian poets uh, fighters uh, for Ukrainian independence uh, because it is enough just to, to write in Ukrainian. Yeah, uh, enough just be existing and it's already uh, kind of an act manifesting your Ukrainian is already an act of uh, anti-colonial struggle. And thank you so much for mentioning Donbass in the East. I think we um, sometimes uh, remind people that there's so many uh, very passionate anti-colonial figures um, fighting who fought and who are still fighting against Russian uh, colonialism from Eastern Ukraine, just for this, for the simple fact that it was, it suffered from Russian colonialism, like probably uh, no other region in Ukraine and the damage it did to that region in terms of not only cultural, but also human impact with genocide is probably Horrible, but I wanted to, you know, ask a quick follow up on uh, the Russian dissident wave of 60s and Ukrainian uh, dissident wave of 60s, because abroad people often know names of Russian dissidents like Solzhenitsyn or Yevtushenko, and they're celebrated and they've been celebrated for decades. Despite that, for example, for everyone in Ukraine, it's uh, uh, well known that those people were reproducing colonial and imperialistic narratives about Russia, and some of them uh, used in their work um, very derogatory terms about Ukraine. But how do you, uh, how do you explain um, even this dynamic lack of um, awareness between the same generation of the same, uh, of the same dissidents that lived formally in the same country at the same time but when it comes to Ukrainian dissidents, their names are almost not um, known abroad. And Russian dissidents, despite their colonial and imperialistic views, are still celebrated. Doesn't really uh, make you frustrated as well? Uh, yeah, there are a couple questions here. First of all, uh, we usually uh, mix uh, dissidents and people from the 60s uh, because uh, there were people who were really dissidents. I mean, uh, they uh, somehow uh, fought the Soviet Union and uh, also there are people uh, like Yevtushenko uh, who uh, felt well in the Soviet Union or was in Sansky. But uh, once I have asked uh, my godfather, Igor Kalinets, about that and uh, how did they communicate uh, with uh, dissidents from Russia. And he told me that in camps uh, they all communicated well and uh, they shared some literature, they shared ideas, they discussed a lot. Uh, and um, it, is, um, it is a very... Um, tough thing for me today uh, that uh, I feel that contemporary Russia uh, doesn't have that uh, heritage of the Russian dissidents like, uh, for example, Sakharov. Uh, but you mentioned Solzhenitsyn and uh, he is a very important figure uh, to discuss and to dwell upon uh, because uh, 
Solzhenitsyn knew well uh, what Gulag was, and uh, for example, Solzhenitsyn was uh, that very person that uh, mentioned uh, that uh, when uh, people from Ukraine came to Gulag, uh, they uh, made it uh, to um, fall apart. Uh, because uh, people uh, from uh, uh, the people from uh, Ukrainian nationalists uh, were really uh, good in fighting against uh, uh, Russian Empire, uh, but uh, when Solzhenitsyn uh, came from Gulag and wrote his famous uh, Archipelago uh, Gulag, and when he got his Nobel Prize. Uh, he still was a person uh, who admired the idea of uh, Russian Empire or of Soviet Empire because um, it is just the same. And uh, for me, it is the most tragic uh, issue that uh, Solzhenitsyn, uh, who understood uh, what Russian Empire is, uh, was against the independence of Ukraine and all other oppressed uh, national states. And uh, he just uh, worked uh, for this empire. And uh, that's why today's Russia remembers uh, Solzhenitsyn, but doesn't remember Sakharov. Even myself, I grew up abroad uh, for a really long time. And for me, as you were saying, like, er you know, I was taught that Solzhenitsyn was like the cool anti-everything, anti-sort of authoritarian writer and things like that. But it's super... I think it's so important what you're saying and what you're educating everyone else um, in relation to to where he came. You know, we've been saying this for a while. A lot of the time when it as soon as it comes to the question of Ukraine and Ukraine's freedom and independence, a lot of these figures start crumbling. Um, but I was just wondering if you had any other examples of, of other writers or poets that we should perhaps, um, you know, question a little bit more their literature, because it's all about also a critical view uh, from our perspective now? I, I would just quickly add that maybe uh, in practical ter terms, I always, you know, because I'm not a, a huge uh, expert on uh, um, literature, but when people keep naming me uh, some really uh, famous Russian cultural figures, um, I always encourage them to match it with something uh, from Ukraine, like if you spend them some time learning the names and learning the uh, cultural imprint of some Russians and you claim to be Ukrainian ally, uh, you must do the same work on Ukraine. And if you know a famous Russian writer, then check yourself if you know a famous Ukrainian writer, if you know a famous, you know, someone, a composer or whatever, check yourself if uh, you know the same from Ukraine. I, I think in this simple terms that could be a very powerful decolonizing moment for our allies to go through right 100 percent, and totally agree with you i i'm the person who usually says you know we're, we should be spending our time on talking about ukraine and not talking about other places but um that's a great way of framing it as well uh, yeah i just want to add that uh, it is not uh, about uh, bad or good uh, russian culture or russian literature but uh, it is a question of justice and uh, injustice and uh, ukrainian culture as well as many eastern european cultures uh, they were just not given enough light uh, because uh, all that uh, light was given to russia
Uh, I don't want uh, to cancel Russia at all because it is uh, just not possible. But uh, what I dream about is to see uh, Russian literature to be reread and to be reread uh, with a decolonial and post-colonial point of view. And uh, I want uh, to, uh, justice to be served uh, to Eastern Europe and uh, some of the positions uh, will definitely be changed or be switched uh, because, uh, for example, there are a lot of uh, Polish writers who deserve much more attention and also there are a lot of Czech writers who deserve much more attention uh, than they have today. Uh, and of course, there are a lot of uh, Ukrainian uh, writers and texts uh, that uh, must be translated. And uh, usually when people speak about uh, the so-called uh, big Russian literature or big Russian culture, uh, they don't ask themselves, why do they know these names? Why do they know these texts? Uh, and the answer is very simple. Uh, because uh, Russia invested a lot of money uh, to uh, make uh, this culture known worldwide. Of course, uh, there are good texts, of course, there is powerful music, of course, there is world culture like in any other nation state in the world. Uh, but uh, when you uh, give this culture enough money and enough marketing, of course, it uh, becomes much visible. And uh, the problem is that uh, Russian culture uh, became much more visible, uh, making another culture not less visible, but uh, like invisible. And it is uh, a very big injustice uh, that... Uh, a lot of people across uh, the world uh, were pretending uh, to be blind uh, to it. Uh, when I was growing up, um, before the renaissance of Ukrainian publishing that happened, maybe in the last just 15 years, the 90s, it wasn't possible to find a Ukrainian book just because Russian publishing already after the fall, fall of the Soviet Union had a head start in terms of industry. It was much richer, it was much uh, better developed, and they just flooded Ukraine with uh, Russian published books, and it was really hard to find a Ukrainian one. So I think it's a very powerful, you know, example. Um, that also kind of illustrates how it works in terms of economy of colonization. Um, uh, Bogdana, yeah. I wanted to, yeah, sorry. If you uh, yeah, I just wanted to add that uh, they just had a very good distribution and uh, even until the Revolution of Dignity, uh, I used to see people that uh, were buying, for example, the translations uh, that were made uh, from foreign language into Russian, not into Ukrainian, uh, because they were used to it and they thought that Russian might be better. Uh, it's not like that, but it is a very big stereotype that worked, of course, also with Ukrainians here inside yeah, the country. Yeah. And it's it's a question to Western publishers as well. 
Um, for example, if you go to any bookstore, of course, these days uh, the Ukrainian or Ukrainian team books are presented in the front. But uh, before the genocide, you would go to a store and it would be very hard to find any Ukrainian books. And just comparatively speaking, uh, Russia is a population of 140 million and Ukraine is 40 million. So in that proportion, okay, you can find three books Russian, but at least one Ukrainian. <laughs> but it's never the case. And, uh, you know, partially because uh, uh, some publishers in the West also need to ask them themselves why translations of uh, Ukrainian writers aren't commissioned uh, to the date. And for example, even for myself, it was very hard to find a publisher uh, for my first book uh, that hopefully will be, um, you know, uh, released uh, soon, uh, just because there are no connection. The people do not write, work with Ukrainian authors at all. And for some publishers, it's unheard to be a publisher of Ukrainian author in the first place. Um, yeah, so this is uh, still a long road to to go. Botana, we're soon we will have to wrap up, but I have a very important question I wanted to ask you um, also yeah. about eternal uh, colonization problem and process, because I know on your podcast, you also discuss that it's not only important to educate the rest of the world about the Russian colonial legacy and how it impacted Ukrainians, but also for Ukrainians to go through this process of uh, uh, developing awareness, how our lives and our culture and our literature have been shaped by Russian colonial rule. And uh, I know that you discussed this very uh, a great example, how still to the date, uh, a lot of Ukrainian authors or just regular Ukrainians uh, get kind of excited when they hear news about Russian um, prominent people uh, supporting Ukraine. And uh, I know that you always have very powerful things to say about that, that uh, this shouldn't be, that Ukrainians should question themselves why they think that just a, a extension of human solidarity is so celebrated when it comes to Russians when in fact should be totally normal, shouldn't be really, uh, you know, paying attention to that because that's how things should be in general. Um, yeah, thanks a lot for this uh, take. Um, uh, when we started our podcast, uh, we wanted uh, with my friend Nastya, uh, who is also a culture manager and who works with uh, big festivals and fairs in Ukraine and abroad. Uh, okay, uh, we just wanted uh, to uh, make a podcast uh, which uh, uh, will be accessible for everybody. We just wanted to show that uh, culture and Ukrainian culture is uh, not uh, something uh, only highbrow. Uh, because uh, uh, that's a thing uh, about culture in Ukraine. Uh, it's because uh, we are a colonial state uh, that uh, when somebody uh, was, for example, translating something or researching something in Ukraine, uh, that person was trying to make, uh, I don't know, uh, something like a PhD uh, from that because uh, people like Lesa Ukrainka or uh, people like Ukrainian dissidents understood uh, that uh, there might be no other person uh, who will um, do that uh, work uh, after them. 
and um, it um, it really um, makes a um, very difficult approach uh, to culture at all in Ukraine because uh, a lot of people uh, just feel that it is something very very difficult. Uh, we wanted to show that uh, it is uh, something that uh, may give you not only joy and fun but also to uh, help you discover something about yourself uh, but uh, there is also another thing and it is about Russian culture which uh, of course uh, was uh, present in Ukraine and it is still present and I need to say that it will be present because it is this it is the culture of our enemies but also of our neighbors uh, I want to say that Russian culture is imperial culture and it means that it tempts uh, it is um, very special about the energy of this culture, but I think that it explains a lot why this culture is very famous uh, also abroad, not only in Ukraine, but also why it is um, well known here and uh, um, accepted here in Ukraine. And uh, in this podcast, uh, we just want uh, to... Um, raise uh, all those uh, questions about uh, uh, colonia colonialism but also uh, self-decolonization and uh, not to make uh, this conversation uh, uh, like you know uh, I'm a person who is Ukrainian speaking from uh, my birth and uh, I don't have issues with uh, language I don't have issues with culture but I understand that uh, I'm rather an exception in this way, uh, but also I uh, want uh, to find a way to speak to all those people who, for example, want to switch a language or just want to discover something uh, deeper and uh, want to discover their culture more. And uh, what is important to me, uh, I want uh, people who listen to our podcast uh, to associate themselves uh, with Ukrainian culture and uh, to um, feel uh, that culture not a phenomena uh, but a um, culture which is uh, tightened for example with European culture because uh, Ukrainian culture I believe is that very source uh, that helps us understand why we are together with European civilization but not with Russian Empire, why Russian Empire is aggressor, uh, because uh, when we try just uh, to cancel Russia and uh, to, um, you know, just to um, close our eyes to this culture and to those people and to uh, to uh, try to forget them, uh, I think that uh, it is um, uh, something very dangerous to us. Uh, but when we try to understand uh, those connections between us and them, but also between us and another countries, us in Europe, us in United States, and so on, uh, we just uh, will be more powerful and uh, we will understand our identity yeah. better. Oh my God, this is <laughs> so powerful. Thank you so much. I mean, it actually also challenged my views on canceling Russia because it makes literally more sense uh, what you're saying in terms of understanding how exactly Russian culture is colonial and imperial and how exactly it made sure that it 
that's known worldwide at the expense of colonized um, colonized uh, cultures. But most importantly, and again, thank you so much for raising this issue of the conversations that we have back in Ukraine about our problems inflicted by colonial rule, like, for example, the inferiority complex that we have. And I think yeah. uh, very often, I, I, I remember this powerful part in your podcast when you uh, guys talked about the the real triumph of colonialism in our lives is not through outright ban or um, genocide or killing or suppression, but when we ourselves start questioning whether we're worthy enough. And this is the main triumph of colonialism in Ukraine or any with any other colonized uh, nations or communities. We always need to ask our final question that we ask everyone uh, who has joined us in Ukrainian spaces, um, which is a little bit about Ukrainian identity uh, for each and every person individually. Um, so, Bogdana, we, we would like to know what do you think um, and what does it mean to be Ukrainian for you in particular? I think that the main feature of uh, being Ukrainian for me is being inclusive. Uh, Ukrainians uh, speak different languages. Uh, Ukrainians uh, have uh, go to different churches or they might be atheists. Uh, they uh, um, have uh, different points of view, uh, but uh, they have the same values and they have the same uh, political culture. And this culture is the same uh, in Ukrainian East, but also in Ukrainian West, in Ukrainian Center and uh, in Ukrainian South. Uh, I live in Kiev. Uh, I have been living here for already more than six years and uh, it uh, became my home. I really love Kiev because when I uh, lived in Lviv, uh, of course, I was uh, like uh, that cliche uh, lady from Western Ukraine. Uh, who uh, knows a lot uh, about history of Austro-Hungary and so on. Uh, but uh, in Kiev, I felt uh, that uh, my uh, um, uh, scope of uh, people who uh, I may meet is much broader than it was in Lviv. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, if you come to Lviv, if you come uh, to Kharkiv, if you come to Kyiv, to Chernihiv, to Zaporizhia, uh, you will feel that Ukrainian is very diverse, but in the same time, uh, it is uh, very um, unique. And uh, that, that's what I really love uh, mostly here. And um, I think that it is the main characteristic. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, one thing that we definitely uh, take from all of this that we need to have you on um, for more conversations because this one is amazing and there's so much to unpack and I feel like we just touched upon everything a little bit and there's uh, for each question there could be a separate episode uh, easily. So thank you so much. It's uh, it was fantastic to host you as featured Ukrainian this time around. And uh, also, uh, just quickly, if you want to bring any attention to maybe uh, sources or platforms you want to amplify, or maybe even fundraisers, please do that. Um, 
at the moment. You know, you feel feel free to mention it. Um, uh, I work uh, for the Ukrainians media, and uh, uh, we uh, have a membership program, and we uh, live uh, with the support of our readers. So. Of course, if you want to support us, uh, I mean to support independent journalism, reportages, interviews, but also podcasts and media projects, uh, you might support us. Uh, but uh, also, I think that you need to support Ukrainian spaces uh, if you want to uh, know uh, more about Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian way of living in the broadest sense. Uh, but for now, just uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, Valeria and Maxim, for having me. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you yeah, so much for joining us. <laughs> I think that's about it. I just wanted real quick, I know we ran out of time, but I really wanted to quick... Um, mention one of the comments that we got about the podcast and about the Ukrainian Spaces broadcast from one of our listeners. So I'm not going to mention the name because it was shared in private, but still. So here's what the person wrote to us. I felt like the podcast has been a good Ukrainian friend to me in the last three months, especially when non-Ukrainian friends just can't relate. With every new voice I hear and with every new thing I learn, I become more and more proud to be Ukrainian. There is a moment in every episode that stops me in my tracks and chokes me right up. In one episode, you talked about hating that Russia taught you to hate and how to, that hate will be uprooted, that Russia can, uh, cannot have that hate. I will never forget those words that stopped me in my tracks at the grocery store and brought me to tears. And honestly, I, I also cried over this. So thank you so much. These kind of feedbacks and messages, they're the kindest ever and they help us to be motivated and keep working um, for Ukrainian spaces and for Ukrainians as well. So, okay, guys, this is it. Uh, apart from one thing, Slava Ukraini. Hello, I'm Slava. Hello, I'm Slava. Okay, bye, everyone. <laughs>